Wow, what a beautiful, beautiful song. Uh, I love that. Speak truth, Lord, to my heart. Uh, a lot of people wonder how that truth comes. Sometimes people think for God to speak to their heart, they're supposed to go into a, a closet and they're going to hear some mystical voice in their head, and maybe God will speak to you that way, perhaps. But when you think that that is the only way that God speaks, how do you know that it's the voice of God speaking to you and not the voice of someone else? That's why I would encourage you, when you want to hear God speak to you, you open up his word and you, you listen because the Bible is the word of God and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And if you really want God to speak to your heart, I know he will when you open it up. I encourage you today to open your Bible to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, it is... Uh, two-thirds of the way through your Bible. If you can find Matthew and turn one page back, you're there. Today, I want to talk to you about something that's really, really, really simple. And that is there's a connection between love of God and giving. If you really want to give God your heart, you also have to give of yourself, your time, and your resources. Now, I, I know a lot of people would push back on that and say, oh, that's not true, Nick. Not, loving God has nothing to do with what you give, and God doesn't care if you give or not, and it's really not important. But Jesus, not Nick, not Paul, not Old Testament, Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. So this is a big deal. There's, there's a connection between your heart and your love for God. If your money's not invested, then Jesus said your heart's not invested. Because your heart will always follow the money. Or your money will always follow your heart. So if you really want God to have your heart, this sermon on giving is extremely important for you. So how we give is a reflection of how we love. And we know that's true. I mean, you know, you give to your wife because you love your wife. You give to your kids because you love your kids. We give to God because we love God. Now, for the last month, we've been working our way through the book of Malachi. Now, if you're in church for the first time in a long time, I'm going to confirm some of your suspicions today. You're going to say, oh, they're ever about money. I knew we are going to hear it. I, I've been here now for seven months. I think this is the first time I've talked about money in seven months. I preached for years, and maybe every three or four years I would talk about it because I kind of had the feeling if God gets your heart, he gets your billfold too. He did in my life. Uh, but I want to tell you, if you're one of those conspiracy theorists and say, there he goes, I knew it's what it was going to be about, I'm preaching verse by verse through the Bible. That way no one can say of me I'm cherry-picking an issue and picking out somebody and saying something about them. We started in verse 1 of Malachi, and we're going to walk through the end. Today we're going to pick up in Malachi chapter 3 in verse 6. It's only going to take us about 10 minutes to walk through this passage here uh, in, in, in Malachi because most of you have heard this passage in your life, and truthfully it doesn't take a Bible scholar to figure this one out. Um, if you remember, the book of Malachi uh, was all about God's love for his people. It starts out with the people saying, we don't think you love us, God. And God says, yes, I do. I've loved you with an everlasting love. You're my special people. I have loved you. I will never stop loving you. And we get to Malachi 3, verse 6. He says, because I have not changed... You've not been destroyed. God says, you know, look, if I didn't love you, I would have killed you by now. Y'all drive me nuts. Well, maybe that's not what he says. But you can read between the lines. 
Look, y'all behave like pagans. And if I weren't a good God and a gracious God and merciful, I would have killed you by now. I haven't destroyed you because I do love you. And then he picks up in this part of Malachi talking about another way that they failed to love him. He says in the next verse, Since the days of your fathers, you've turned from my statutes and you have not kept them. And, and, and basically said, I gave you my laws, I gave you what's good, I told you what to do, and you haven't done it. And he says, return to me. This is the key passage in the whole book of Malachi. In fact, it's the key passage in the whole Old Testament. God loved them. He showered them with his goodness. He provided a land. He provided laws. He provided this nation that they could live and dwell in. And yet they were... They, all the time we're, we're letting their heart move from God. And God says, return to me. This is really the message of the whole Bible. The reason I started off the service today asking about how many perfect people are here is because none of us are there. And every morning I have to wake up with that same prayer, oh God, my heart is so wicked. I wish it weren't, but I know. I mean, don't you know about yourself? I know about me. I know I want things to work out for me. I know I want to look good in front of everybody when I'm speaking. And, and, and I'd like to say it's always for God's glory, but sometimes it's for Nick's glory. I'd like to say that, that every decision I make has pure motives and it's always for the good of everyone else. But I know sometimes that evil lurks within me and I have to wake up in the morning and I have to say, Oh, God, I'm such a sinner. It pains me sometimes to sit and sing praises to God because I'm so unworthy to sing his praise. And yet, when I feel so low that I don't think there's any possible way God could love me, I hear him whisper, return to me. I love you. I've not changed. If I were to change, I would have crushed you already. But I love you. And if you haven't heard anything this morning, and if you tune out on me the rest of the day, please hear God saying to you, return to me. I love you. I have always loved you, and I will never stop. <sighs> but they say, how can we return? Now, if you want to understand this, remember I said Malachi is a series of six questions and answers, and it's like an old man and an old woman fighting at the breakfast table. If you read it and you get that, you'll kind of understand what's going on. But, but here, change the voice between an old man and an old woman and a parent and a teenager. God says, would you return to me? And you can almost hear in your best teenage voice, well, how can we return to you? What have we done wrong? I know y'all probably have never had a teenager like that. But anyhow, and God a answers that question with a question, and he says, will a man rob God? Will, will, will a man rob God? Now, honestly, the concept of robbing God's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, who's going to break into his home and catch him sleeping? You know, I mean, who, who's going to overpower him and take what he has? And even if you took what he had, who's going to uh, deplenish? Is that a word, deplenish? It is today. <laughs> who's going to make little of what he's got left? You know, I mean, he's God. But he says, will a man rob God? And yet, the next part of the verse says, Yet you are, and they said, "What? How are we robbing you? We don't get it. How are we? How are we robbing you?" And then he says, "By not making the payments of the tenth and of the contributions." Your Bible might say, "By not giving your tithes or your offerings." 
Now, that's a pretty familiar verse for those of us who were raised in church. We've heard that a lot of our life. But you can see in this passage how they're drifting further and further away from God. In chapter 1, they were coming to worship, and they were bringing stuff to God, but they were bringing the lame, sick animals, and they were giving their leftovers to God. By the time we move to chapter 3, they're not bringing anything to God at all. And so you see this drifting in their heart. Now, let's just real quickly spend a couple of seconds talking about two ways they were robbing God. The first is, they were robbing God in the tithe, or as my version says, a tenth, because that's what a tithe really means. It's to give a tenth. God's people were to give a tenth of their wealth, their produce, their flocks, their money, whatever. They were to bring their first to God, and every year when they came to the temple, they would bring a tithe, a tenth. Uh, Now, the tithe was used for some different things in the Old Testament. Number one, it was used to take care of the temple, uh, and it was used to take care of the priests who served in the temple. Just like today, they had a building that they had to upkeep, They had uh, uh, maintenance and repair, either for the temple or for the tabernacle. And so the tithe was used to do that. It was also used to pay the salaries or to take care of the livelihood of the priests and the Levites so that they could be there in the temple and serving the people when they would come and and need uh, to make an offering. Now, without this support, they'd have to go back to farming and the temple would be left empty. It's really similar, if you think about it, the setup of the Old Testament to today. A second use of the tithe was to provide for community festivals. Several times a year, the people of God would come together. God told them, I want you to party. I want you to raise your hands and celebrate. I want you to acknowledge that I'm a good God. I delivered you from slavery. I have provided for you. I have protected you. I want you to celebrate. And he had several times that he called them together to celebrate. And so he said, the tithe will take care of the food and the preparations for the celebration. They also used the tithe to help care for the poor. Uh, uh, Whenever there was needs, uh, the the Levites and the priests had the ability to help meet those needs through the temple offerings and tithes. Now, an offering was a little... A tithe was kind of the one-tenth, I guess if we want to call it this, tax that you had for being a Jew. The offering was above and beyond that. Uh, It was something you gave just extra because God was just good to you. And if you felt like you'd been especially blessed, you'd just bring more to God. But here in Malachi's day, the people weren't doing this. They weren't bringing their offerings. They weren't paying their tithe. And because of this, God says you're living under a curse. Listen to what it says. I mean, not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. He says you are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. The people's unfaithfulness was causing them pain. And God had a deal with the people of Israel. He said, I'm going to pick you as a special people. I'm going to love you. I'm going to make you the instruments of of my grace to the world. I'm going to give you instructions on how to live. And if you'll listen, I'll honor you. I'll bless you. I'll bless your kids. I'll bless your crops. I'll bless your resources. And yet they were drifting from him, and they were living under a curse. And listen, I want to point out something in verse 9. Listen to what he says. It's not only just individuals who are suffering under a curse. The whole nation, the the whole people, the chosen ones, the beloved, are suffering under a curse. Now, what's interesting to me in the entire Old Testament, now this is a big statement. When you say entire anything, always in the Old Testament when the people of Israel refer to it, it's my people, my special chosen, my nation, my 
always used in a positive light, God. They might be doing bad things, but God still says, man, I love you. And here's what's interesting to me. This one time, back, go back to that verse if you would. That one time here, he uses the word nation, and you can't see it in English, but in Hebrew, it's the word for a pagan people who act like they don't know me. And y'all just got to the place where y'all just act like you don't know me at all. It's like he's saying you're supposed to be special, but you look like everyone else. Now, God's love never gives up on his people. Listen to what he says. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord of hosts. And then he says, go ahead to the next verse. Or excuse me. The people were encouraged to give back. And, and God promised them two things. If they would give faithfully, he promised them that he would protect them and provide them. And let's go to this verse. Listen to what he says in the next verse. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven. See if I will not pour out a blessing on you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer. The one who tries to chew you up and spit you out, I will rebuke the devourer. And, and, and it will not produce, uh, it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine in your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of hosts. And then listen to how he fi finishes. Then everybody will see. All the nations will see that you're fortunate, for you will be a delightful land. Now, sometimes it's tricky, and if you've been here the last few weeks, one of the things we've had to acknowledge is sometimes it's tricky to figure out how to apply the Old Testament law to New Testament living. I want to give you a few principles that I believe it is very fair to draw from this passage. Number one, God takes how we handle money very seriously. It's not just an Old Testament principle. It's throughout the New Testament as well. In the Christian faith, we talk about a lot of things that can't be proven. I'm going to acknowledge it. I tell you, if you ask God to forgive you, he'll forgive you. If you ask Jesus into your heart, he'll come to live inside of you. I talk about if you will trust in him, he will take you to heaven when you die. And I want to tell you, there's no way I can prove that tangibly to you. It's taken on faith and it's internal. I know, I believe, I feel, I'm assured. But I can't prove that to you tangibly. We get that. This is one area where God says, in giving, I will prove myself to you. He says in this passage, to test him... Uh, in this, uh, to, to test the Lord and to see that, that he is faithful. Giving is a very tangible way to experience God. When we give, he just takes care of us. He does. Um, I see it all the time, people who can't manage money at all. They start giving to the Lord and all of a sudden the ends start meeting. It's almost as if God's winking and saying, see, I told you so. And he's faithful in that. He's faithful in all. Second thing I want us to learn is that our giving leads to God's blessing. When you give, God takes care of you. Now, I'm always hesitant to speak about this because some preachers have used this principle for personal gain, and I don't want to be like them. You know, I, I, I'm not here telling you if you give God a 10, he'll give you a 100. If you hear that, you heard wrong. You just wanted to hear wrong. But I am telling you, when you give to God, he's faithful. He will provide what you need when you need it. Our God is faithful. Uh, the New Testament teaches that, that when we give, the Lord gives to us. 
a good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into our lap. I don't know what he gives every time, but what he gives is good. He might return seed for seed. He might just return lack of hunger for seed. But God will provide, and he will take care. Uh, the Bible says, he who sows sparingly, reaps sparingly. He who sows generously will reap generously. And I've seen this so many times in my life. Guys, I've just seen this over and over. I'm going to share with you a couple of stories that are personal to me. They mean a lot to me. They might mean nothing to you. But if you're a giver, you, you, you'll know. When I first got married, I was 20 years old. My wife was 18, not yet 19. We were pups. And we got married, and I made a hundred, and it was exactly one hundred and seventy-eight dollars before taxes. We had a rent of two hundred and fifty dollars, and we had uh, that was before utilities. And when I said I do, I was too proud to ask my parents or her parents for any help. And my parents had told me, if you get married, you ain't getting no help. So I thought we were on our own. Because you got to grow up when you do things like that. You, you want to act like a grown-up? Be a grown-up. You know, and so that's where we were at. Well, we had been married for about a month, and we had been barely scraping by, and we were eating spaghetti one night and hot dogs the next night, and we'd ration the sauce when it was spaghetti night, you know. And that was just how life was. It was tight around our house, really tight. It was so tight around our house, we had a rule. You didn't spend more than $1 without asking each other. That's how tight it was. And you might say, well, that was back when a dollar was a day's wages. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it was tight. Okay? We'd been married for about a month, and my wife said to me, Nick, when do we give to the church? And I thought, give? What do you mean give? I give at the office. They don't pay me much. That's how I give. Actually, I'd never been taught about tithing. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. My wife was. She'd been taught to tithe all her life. She'd been taught these principles. She said, Nick, we've got to give. The Lord will not bless us if we don't give. And uh, I, I talked to her about it. We had decided we were going to give. And I said, okay, honey, you know more about this than I do. How much are we supposed to give? Now, I knew what a tenth was, and I was thinking $17.80 is what we were giving a week. And, you know, we'd round up to the 80. You know, that's, that's what we're going to give. And she said, Nick, I think we ought to give $25. I'm thinking, there's no way we can give $25. Just can't happen. We can't make it. I know what we make. This won't work. Well, I was the, the bean counter in our family, and I was the one who kept the checkbook, and I knew what was going in and what was going out. But we started tithing. And I'll never forget, I showed the staff this the other day, but my little prayer notebook thing, I had this. That's about the time I got it. I, I would write my prayers out. And I don't like testing the Lord, and I don't write out specifics because I feel like that's me kind of telling what God, God, this is what I want you to do or what you got to do. But I don't write out specifics. I just don't do that very often. But I, in this moment, I wrote, I was looking at our bills, and I thought, we can't make it. And I said, God, we need $100. We need $100. I went to bed, and, you know, I, anxiety stuff over the bills. I got up. I was too young to know that drinking coffee at 1 in the morning doesn't help you sleep. Uh, some things you got to learn on your own, you know. <laughs> and uh, uh, I got up, and I went into the kitchen table. I was making a pot of coffee, and I was sitting down there reading my Bible, studying for the Bible study I was going to lead. And I looked up, and my wife had put our checkbook statement, checking account statement. Now, for those of y'all who don't know what that is, that's when they'd send you your stuff, so you had to balance it because you did. But anyhow, it was sitting there, and I was the one that did that. 
And I sat down and I started working on it. I'd written a $50 deposit in as a $50 check that we had written. Y'all know what happens when you take $150 and move it to the other side in your checkbook? Makes $100. Telling you, God spoke to me there at that moment, telling me, try me in this. I'll take care of you. Another time, a little later, it was several years later, actually, we were already living in Hopkinsville. It was probably 2001, 2002. We weren't getting rich by any stretch of the imagination, and we were had two girls by this time, and we were trying to figure out how to make ends meet, but we were still giving faithfully, giving above and beyond, and our water heater broke down. And I thought, ah, oh, no big deal. Got to get your water heater fixed. I called the guy out and said, Skip, I need you to fix it. Skip came down. He fixed it. Skip was a friend of mine, or at least I thought, and then... Actually, I think he cut me a good deal, but uh, I thought it was going to cost about 150 bucks. You know, I never had a water heater go out. Water heaters don't cost 150 bucks. It was 600, and I think it was 683 dollars. We didn't have 683 dollars. I didn't know how we were going to make it, what we were going to do. I wasn't calling my mom and dad, <laughs> and I wasn't calling hers, and I didn't know what we were going to do. That afternoon, he put it in, and I just thought, Lord, you're going to have to help us take care of this. I'd forgotten that I'd sent our tax return in. And they sent it back, and Lord is my witness as I'm standing here. That tax return was within $1 of covering for that water heater. I got it on the day that water heater was put in. And back in the old days when they didn't do it electronically and tell you it's going to be here in three days, it might be three months, it might be whatever, it came on that day. I forgot all about it, but I praise the Lord. He just takes care of it. I could give you instant after instant of how the Lord, uh, instance after instance of how the Lord has taken care of me. Um, I've heard hundreds of testimonies. I gave and God took care of me. I, he started working. God blessed, but I've never heard anyone say, I started giving and went hungry. God didn't provide. I've never heard that testimony. Not one time ever in my life. Now the next principle I want to talk about is how much are you supposed to give. One question that always comes up is does the New Testament teach tithing? Now this might be a strange question if you were raised like my wife. Of course it teaches tithing. The truth is the New Testament doesn't teach tithing per se. It just doesn't. Uh, it talks about percentage giving. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2, on the first day of the week, each of you should something and save in keeping with how he prospers. It teaches that for sure. Uh, but what that percentage is, is not laid out in the New Testament. I'm sorry, it's just not. I have to be honest to the Bible. I'm a man of the Bible. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, the Bible does teach that each person should do as he's decided in his heart, uh, not out of regret or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So with that said, I'm going to say something, and for those of y'all who want to check out on me and throw something at me, give me a second. We can't teach tithing as a law. We just, we just can't. It's interesting to me when I compare the New Testament with the Old Testament, how far the Old Testament law falls of what God really wants. Think about this. Jesus reminded us that in the Old Testament it said you should love your friends. And Jesus said, I tell you, you should love your enemies. In the Old Testament, it said you shouldn't commit adultery. But in the New Testament, Jesus said, I tell you, it's a heart thing. You shouldn't even lust. In the Old Testament, you're taught you shouldn't murder. But Jesus said it goes deeper than that. 
I'm teaching you, you shouldn't even hate your brother. You you see where I'm going with this? In the Old Testament, it teaches the tithe. If you want to look at what the New Testament says about giving, we give whatever it takes for the Lord's work to be done. That's what the New Testament teaches. In fact, there are several instances in the New Testament where people gave all they had. Zacchaeus, a rich tax collector, gave uh, uh, one half of what he had. Jesus watched. Now catch this. This blows my mind. Jesus watched a widow who was giving at the temple treasury, and they had these big horn-like things where they would spin their coins in and ring them and trumpet their goodness. And they, he was watching these rich people pour in their stuff. And then he saw a little widow coming up, maybe watching because she didn't want to be embarrassed by how little she was going to give. And Jesus called his disciples and said, Guys, look, watch this. And she put in her two mites and he said, That's giving. That's giving. You know what has always blown my mind away about that? I would have stopped her. Wouldn't you? A little old lady who has nothing, giving everything she's got. There's no way I'd let her give it. Never! Jesus knew something about giving that sometimes I forget. God takes care of those who give. He took care of that widow. He'll take care of us. Now... While I do not believe we can teach tithing as a law, I think it's a good place to start. My problem with teaching tithing as a law is there's some of you here who tithe, and you're as greedy with your 90% as any people I've ever seen. Do you really think that honors God? I give my 10% and I'm done. I give my 10% out of my abundance and I'm done. I give my 10% and then I use the rest on me, 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 me. Do you really think that honors God? Do you really think Jesus would have jumped into our service and said, did you see them? They gave 10% of their abundance. Let's be honest, guys. A lot of times, here's what tithing has done to a church. A church starts saying, well, should I tithe on the gross or on the net? Why would you say something like that? You're trying to figure out how little you can do and make God happy and keep him off your back and on your side. That's not true giving. That's legalism. And those who live by the law will die by the law. But where the Spirit is, there's liberty. And there's freedom. Now, I believe that while tithing is a good place to start, it's a terrible place to finish. Because most of us can get there. And if we're not careful, we'll live in selfish pursuits with what's left. Giving is not, nor has it ever been about money. It's about the heart. Giving is about the heart. This is what it's about in the whole Old Testament. It's what it's about in the New Testament. If God has your heart, he'll have your money too because you give to that which you love. Now, why would people say they love God and not give? I'm going to give you three things here and and be patient with me. I'm going to give you wiggle room. Maybe I shouldn't, but I will. 
One reason people don't give is because they're not a believer. You know, they, 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 just, they just don't, don't believe. They, they say they trust God, but really they don't. I can't fault you for not giving. If you don't trust God and you don't give, I don't blame you. If you don't believe in God and you don't give, I, I'm, I get it. You know, why would you? Giving is a response to grace. If no grace, there's no reason to give. Second reason, some of you can't afford to give. You've dug yourselves in such a big hole, or you've tried to live far beyond your means, you don't see any way you can squeeze out any for the kingdom. Now, I do believe God will honor you trying to give. I do. But when you start trying to give to God, you're going to have to make a decision, I'm going to quit spending on me. It's the selfish spending on you that's got you in the hole where you can't help anybody else or the kingdom. Some people have misplaced priorities. That was the case in Malachi's day. They were giving, but their priorities were flipped upside down. If we're honest, here's where most Americans are. Most of ours are. Our financial priorities look like this. Here's what our typical list lives. We spend. That's what we do. We get money, we spend money. We get money, we spend money. And then with the second thing we do is we pay debt because we spent more money than we had. And so we got money, we spend it on us, we pay debt, and then we pay taxes, you know, because... It is what it is. We live in a country that uh, 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 is sustained through our taxes. Then we save, and then if we have any left over, we give. Now, almost everybody does those first three. Some get to number four. A few get to number five. Here's the problem. This is, this is pretty typical, wouldn't you say? This is pretty much what everybody's life looks like in America. You know what the problem is with this list? Let me show you. When you spend, guess who it's on? You, me. When I pay debt, me. When I pay taxes, oh, well, that's really for us. No, it's not. It's so I don't go to jail, right? <laughs> it's a me again, you know. Number four, I save. It's for me. And then so we get down to number five, and then we give, and that's for God and for others. Even though many of us would say we love God, if you prioritize like this, essentially it puts God last and, other, and others last in your life. Hey, if there's anything left over, God, I'll help you out. But what's weird to me, that, that in spite of this fact, it doesn't keep us from going to God and asking for his help. Uh, you know, I'm having a little trouble maintaining my lifestyle, God. Help me out here. You know, and if he doesn't come quickly to our aid, then he's to blame. And I don't know what God is thinking but I would probably be thinking, like, why are you coming to me now? All I am is an emergency fund for you. The above priority system is a closed door to God. What an insult to get on your knees and say, help me, help me, God, but you're still going to be number five in my life. God says, I want to be priority in your life, not leftovers. This is what Jesus says. No one can be a slave of two masters. He will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and he'll despise the other, but you can't be slaves of God and of money. And so when it comes to money, the competition is not between God and the devil. It's, it's not even between God and money. You know who it's really between? You and God. I want first place in my life. Me, 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 me. Maybe you. Here's the problem. Though we're here today, in church, a lot of people's lists look just like this. And to us, God says, you've got to put me first in, my fi fi in your finances. 
not just in your prayer, not just coming to church, but in your finances. Don't worry, Sam, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? Don't worry about these things. You're so worried about these things that you put it at the top of the list and me at the bottom. And I'm not going into these verses, but you know what he says next? Even the pagans act like this. That sound familiar to a phrase in Malachi a minute ago? Even pagans act like this. So, I have a simple plan for you. I've shared this with my daughter. I'll share it with you. Here's how I believe you ought to live your life financially. I believe it ought to look like this. Give to God first. Save second. Live on what's left. Give, save, live. How come? Because when you give, you're thinking of others. And you're putting God in his rightful place. When you save, you're thinking about me, but you're thinking about me later. And then when you live, you're thinking about me now. And I just want to say, I got carried away on this in the last service. I won't get carried away here. The Christian faith is about the day when God makes things right, completely right. The creed says, we believe that he is coming again. He does not promise this life will be easy. And if you listen to garbage preaching and garbage preachers and garbage churches that tell you you can have your best life right now, they're idiots and they're wrong. I'll tell you why they're idiots and wrong, because God didn't promise that. God said in this life you'll have trials and tribulations, but I have overcome the world. If you think you're going to have your best life now, I want to remind you something. One day you're heading to Oldville. And when you get to Oldville, it's not easy town. And if you think it is, go down to the nursing home. And what did they do wrong that they're not getting their best life now? This life's not easy. It's hard, but our hope is in the God who makes all things new. He makes all things right, who overcomes this world, who there is a day that is coming. Our hope is in the one who will one day rescue his people forever. And when you put God first, in this life now, you're saying, God, I'm trusting you to work right now. When God is put first in a specific area, we've said, God, I want you to work in that area. Some of you are upside down, and I don't know what to tell you. Except quit digging the hole and start giving to God and trust that he will deliver you. But don't expect God to deliver you. If you're going to always spend everything you have on you, God resists the proud, and the one who wants to save his life will lose it. And the one who loses and gives away, he'll save his life. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take these words and you would use them. Lord, these are hard words for me to share because I know people... Some people are in really deep holes and they can't see the light. And God, I pray that you would shine hope into their life. That, Lord, if they will put you first and make you priority, God, it might not be easy, but, God, you will provide. And, God, I pray, Lord, that you will help people see that, that you're worthy of our all. 
Lord, we want to give our leftovers and our little, but God, you're worthy of our life and our devotion. And God, I acknowledge today, Lord, if, if my life were, were, were money and every minute I live was an investment I made in you, God, I know that I've not given you nearly what I should. God, I pray, Lord, that you'd forgive me for that. And Lord, once again today, I come acknowledging, Lord, I'm not perfect and I need your forgiveness. And Lord, I love the whisper of your voice that says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus, speak to our congregation today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.